Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. On Spectrum, we cover a wide range of topics that are important to our daily lives. We feature journalists, authors, scholars, policymakers, activists, scientists, innovators, and some people who just have fascinating stories. Today, guest host Emily Votaw speaks with journalist and entrepreneur Chris Witherspoon. He's an accomplished entertainment journalist, having interviewed a host of high-profile celebrities. Most recently, Witherspoon developed and launched Pop Viewers, a platform which not only allows everyday users to rank and respond to the media they consume, but also gives viewers suggestions on what to watch next. Thank you so much for your time today, Chris. Uh, thank you for having me. When you got the internship to uh, Good Morning America, what a huge opportunity. And you yeah. obviously did so well with it. Did you feel at home in that environment? How would you? How did you adapt, adapt to it so that you could uh, perform on such a high level professionally? I mean, still as a young person. <clears throat> you know, Emily, I... TV and film raised me, right? So some of my favorite shows and movies took place in New York City. So what I did was I kind of transported myself ment mentally to these different characters <laughs> in shows and movies that I loved. And so all these different places when I would be on the subway, when I'd be, you know, um, figuring out what I'm going to eat for dinner for 3 or $4. because so I had no money. Literally, I was Poe, okay? <laughs> but I thought about the hot dog stand from the movie that I saw or, you know, how a lot of people in my favorite shows and films were always broke in New York City and trying to figure it out. And I always say when you live in New York City, there's a person or a, a, a friend, a lover that you have, and that is the city. Manhattan, is you date it every single day. You go on a date with it. You can be alone strolling through the streets at, I used to go to work at 4 a.m. I had to be at the studio at 5.30 and I had an hour commute from deep in Brooklyn to Times Square. But when you get out, you just walk around and you look at so many things. And now that I've been in New York for 18 years, you can always spot someone who's new because they're always looking around. That was me. I, I didn't even look at anything in front of me. I was looking up. I was looking to the left, up and around. Um, so to, to answer your question, I really occupied my time um, just like being a tourist. And then my fellow interns, a lot of us were from flyover states. <laughs> That's what they said, flyover states. And we all together would just like get together and go figure out how we could eat dinner for $5 that night and you know do something fun. 
I mean, sort of shifting gears, I suppose, I, I really wanted to talk about uh, Pop Viewers, of course. You are the founder and CEO, but you're also, uh, you know, an inc- enormously accomplished entertainment journalist. So could you sort of share with our listeners and I how your experience as an entertainment journalist sort of led to the founding of uh, Pop Viewers in December 2020? I think yes, it was? we launched December 2020 officially. It was kind of a soft launch, so more like January 2021. But yeah, so my entertainment journalism background goes back about 10 years. I'm still kind of new to doing TV, doing um, interviews, but I was working for a website called thegrio.com. It was an African-American news website. Um, I had a boss. Her name is Joy Reed. She's incredible. She's now on TV. If you guys watch MSNBC, watch The Reed Report on Monday through Friday, 7 p.m. Um, but I was at the Grio back in 2012, and I was really I was kind of being underused there. I was, you know, writing pieces for the site. I wanted to get on camera so badly, but they just didn't see that I was ready to do that because I had no background as a journalist. I didn't go to school here for journalism. I went for comms. But Joy came in. Um, she just got hired to be our managing editor. And she came from South Florida. And she was like, hold on, what's your name? Uh, I'm your new boss. You should be doing our entertainment reporting. You should be interviewing the stars, going to junkets, red carpets. Uh, and I did. I began doing a lot of that. And, you know, being in the space 10 years ago, covering film and covering TV um, for the African-American com- uh, community, what I began seeing was that our content, our shows and our movies were being overlooked by critics, but were outperforming Expectations. So, for example, you know, a couple of films from like Will Packer or Tyler Perry, they were being made for less than $10 million and oftentimes making over $100 million. And I saw that there were these micro conversations that were happening on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that were really leading to macro effects, you know, at the box office and also the newsroom. I began being called on by MSNBC and the Today Show to cover these films that were making a lot of huge waves. A few years later, I began working for CNN and often. Oscar So White happened. I really owned that for MSNBC and for CNN. Um, reporting around it. And what we began to see was that, again, critics, the industry insiders in Hollywood weren't always getting it right when they talk about films and TV shows. They oftentimes, and I mean, I get to go to all these early screenings of shows and movies now, and there's a lot of groupthink. Um, I remember for Amy Schumer film a few years ago, I walked out and there were all these guys, these, these straight white men who, and nothing's wrong with straight white men, by the way, shout out to y'all, how you doing? Um, But they didn't like this film that was written by a woman, by a woman that was for women, and it got it, it got an awful score on Rotten Tomatoes and a lot of the major critic aggregates. And the reality is there isn't enough diversity among critics, there aren't enough women, there aren't enough minorities. Uh, so I wanted to create a platform that was going to, one, help people discover what to watch next. There's so much programming right now. If you open up your TV, if you have a smart TV, you got to go to Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, all the different platforms to see what they're telling you to watch. Um, There's so many movies coming out now that are kind of slipping through the cracks that I wanted to create a platform that would help you discover new content as you swipe on the Pop Viewers app. We're learning more about you. We're giving you recommendations across all platforms and then a community around the content so you can find people who watch shows like you. You can see what they're watching, see their reviews, their reactions. Um, the Emmys just happened, for example, and there are all these big winners of a lot of shows people still haven't watched. You can come on Pop Viewers and see what real people have said about Abbott Elementary or Hacks or any of the big winners 
listeners and then decide to watch it, add it to your watch list, share it with a friend, um, review it on the app. So all those things are what the app does, you know, when you're holding it in your hand. But the bigger mission of Pop Viewers is to be able to have our analytics be a resource for the studios, for the content creators who are spending, you know, a lot of money on research to try to figure out one what to create next, and how to market their content to the right audiences. So our pop viewers community really, on its best day, is a massive um, focus group (laughs) for all the networks and studios to be able to utilize. Why is it so important for the individual viewer to be able to see someone that looks like them in the media they consume? Ooh, I think it's I think it's what we have to do right now. I think that TV and film, it it is a part of our everyday life. For example, you asked me about New York. How did I make it in New York? It was because of all the films and shows that I watched. You know, there weren't that many people of color on Friends, but I always watched Friends that took place in New York City. Um, I think that the content that we watch, especially now, it's how we been connected the past two years. And the stories that you see told are really how we in many ways see other people. You know, if I'm watching a show about, you know, an Asian, uh, an Asian American family, what I'm seeing is going to inform my perspective in many ways on the Asian American community and so on and so on. So I think it's so important that the content that we see truly reflects diversity and also gets it right. You know, and, and, and that there's a, a wide array of depictions of, you know, different groups of people. I know for a fact because I do work with the studios now. I just did a screening a couple nights ago for Sony Pictures, a new movie called The Woman the Woman King. I almost said Woman Queen. The Woman King with Viola Davis. And even Sony, I was talking to them about what we're creating right now, and they're very interested in potentially partnering at some point, um, talked about how they really look to analytics to inform, you know, what kind of content they should make and how analytics right now is so precious. It's hard for them to find, you know, um, deep cuts of analytics like we offer um, to help them really see what folks are watching and gravitating to and why, and not just what they're watching and loving, but what they're watching and think could be done differently and better, because it's so important. Going back to the Emmys, I mean, the Emmys don't have an amazing track track record when it comes to honoring creatives that aren't um, white men. And uh, I mean, this past Emmys had some great moments in it. It had some awkward moments in it. But I'm curious from, from your perspective, are the Emmys moving in the right direction, in the right way when it comes mm. to honoring diversity in the industry? They're doing a lot better job. I think if you would ask me this question, because I've been covering these award shows now for 10 years, if you would ask me this question five years ago, I would have said, hail to the no. Um, but I think that this most recent Emmy Awards, it was phenomenal seeing the the women that won that won awards. Um, I think that Cheryl Lee Ralph, you know, at 65 years old, she's been largely overlooked her her work for many years. And she's done Emmy-worthy work before. She's done work that should have been nominated for Tony Awards, for Oscars. Um, seeing her be able to get her overdue credit wasn't uh, phenomenal. I also think that one of the categories that we got to see a lot more representation in, that is the writing category, um, whether that's people of color women in general, winning that award, it, it, it moves the needle forward because when you can write a show as a woman or a person of color, you're, you're also able to dictate the casting, what those characters will look like, what stories these characters will tell. So Quinta Brunson winning the award for Abbott Elementary, that was huge. Only the second black woman ever in the history of the Emmys to win that award. And then I think 
I saw strides with ageism in Hollywood. That's a huge thing. Uh, when you're a woman and you're over a certain age in Hollywood as an actress, oftentimes you're overlooked. Jean Smart, 71 years old, won the Best Actress in a Comedy Award. She's only the second person to win that award uh, over the age of 70. So it was phenomenal. And I think she still has her best work ahead of her. You know, So I think that we're seeing a lot of strides, but I do believe we can do better. The fact that I'm saying things like the second person, the third, you you know, that's that's bad. You know, we have to have a lot more of those happen on a more regular basis. Um, but we're getting there. We're getting there. The strides are happening. Social media sort of came into dominance as you're mm. simultaneously rising in your, your own career. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious, what was it like to witness that shift uh, within the industry firsthand as someone that was in the industry? You know, um, I think it's magical and, and amazing. And I'll never forget. So I worked with NBC News for a very long time. And when you guys think of NBC News, it's the, t uh, the Today Show. It's NBC's Nightly News. When I was there, it was Brian Williams, who had just taken over from Tom, from Tom Brokaw. Um, but there's the, the Today Show, Meet the Press, um, different NBC News digital platforms. And there's a share meeting that happens every morning at 9 a.m. And it's all the executive producers, um, the leaders from different shows coming together and talking about the news that they're going to be covering that day. And also kind of like what we should cover tomorrow and this week. So I remember being a part of the GRIO, this African-American news startup back in 2012, and going to the share meeting with like Joy. You know, it would be like Joy and like one of the editors. We'd go and we'd begin pitching stories. And I remember in 2012, um, Joy pitched a story about a young boy who was shot in Stanford, uh, Florida. Is it Stanford? Stanford, Florida. Um, and it was a story that was very local. It was being she had saw it on Twitter. Uh, and the NBC News share team was like, OK, that's interesting. You know, not interesting in the way, but very sad. Keep us updated. Um, but that's not being covered on any of the on the national news wires yet. The AP hadn't covered it. Reuters hadn't covered it yet. But it was happening on Twitter, on on Twitter in local Florida. It was like all these reporters and just like citizen journalists were talking about this kid, Trayvon Martin, who was killed by someone who should not have had a gun. Um, and a few days later, it just kept trending on Twitter. So guess what? NBC News went wall to wall with it for the very first time, a story that hadn't been, you know, national news um, in the sort of formal way that we know it became something that it did not stop trending on Twitter for weeks on end. They sent Joy to like Florida with the camera crew to like literally do step by step of where he went, how he got to where he got, how he got shot. Uh, and we saw that happen throughout the rest of the year. Tamir Rice. Um, there were so many young people of color who were getting shot by the police. And guess where the reporting was happening? Twitter. Twitter first. Then the newsroom was like, oh, we have to cover this. Uh, it happened with Oscar So White. That was a hashtag. I'm, I'm friends with uh, uh, April who tweeted that, uh, who was not a journalist. She was not a reporter. She was working in PR and marketing, <laughs> but who saw the nominations was like, this ain't right. Oscar So White. Hashtag Oscar So White. And then it just took wildfire, um, like wildfire. So I think that it's been incredible to see how everyday people have the power in their hands to record something that they see going down that shouldn't be happening, whether it's police pulling someone over, um, you know, being too rough with someone. Those stories wouldn't have legs were it not for social media, were it not for Facebook video, Twitter video, and also people saying, this isn't right, I'm going to reshare this. And then suddenly the newsroom says, okay, we got to 
covered this, you guys. We got to go wall to wall with it because everyday people care about it. So I think it's been phenomenal. Uh, and it's not just with social justice issues. It's with entertainment. It's with politics. Twitter and social media dominates the discussions. That's really why I also wanted to create Pop Viewers because the idea of us having all this analytics and also momentum around social conversations around films and shows, we can then turn that into momentum that can become news. Our, our sort of crowdsource scores or crowdsource reactions from a film after it hits theaters, Monday morning, that should be news very soon. You should begin hearing on the Today Show, oh, you know, The Woman King dropped, it made $100 million at the box office, and on Pop Viewers, it had this score and was trending and we had this many reactions, and this is the first time that's ever happened. You know, like, I think that it's it's interesting now to see that, <laughs> you know, 10 years ago, you never would have heard this thing happen and it was trending for the past 24 hours on Twitter. Now that's really, it's a part of the newsfeed. From your perspective, what kind of obligations, like ethically and morally, does someone who might be, um, you know, considered an entertainment journalist as opposed to, I guess, you know, a hard news journalist have to their audience? Ooh. You know, I think... I think ethically and morally, one of the most important things that you have to do is make sure that whenever you are sitting down with someone that you're asking the questions that really matter. Um, I always say that when I interview someone, I don't do vanilla questions. You're not going to see me sit down with a cast of a film that, you know, the movie was trash, <laughs> you know, and I'm going to come and sit with you and just celebrate the film and not ask you the tough questions, you know, um, or if there's a, a show or a movie that came out that has a subject matter that is, you know, newsworthy. I'm going to ask you that question that's going to tie into the news of what's happening. And you can say, I don't want to answer that question, but I'm still going to ask you that. And I think it's very important as journalists um, to make sure that you ask the question that your audience wants to have you answer. Uh, I, I interviewed Oprah three times. Um, but the first time I interviewed her, it was at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. And I interviewed her for a film called The Butler. Um, and I had a good eight minutes with her in this hotel room. And then I had to go interview like a lot of other people, Lee Daniels, um, Forrest Whitaker. And I'm done with my interviews. And I'm sitting in the hallway waiting for one more interview. And Oprah comes out of the room where I interviewed her. And she's standing in front of me. I saw her feet first. And I just didn't want to look up because I was like, those are Oprah's toes. I know they are. And why is she standing in front of me? I've already interviewed her. And she says my name and she begins talking to me. And before I could even let her finish, I said, Oprah, and I'm looking up at her. I'm like, Oprah, thank you so much for all the interviews you did with my friends and my colleagues. Everyone said the same thing. You answered all of our questions. You just like you you gave us the opportunity to get in front of you, but you also gave us great tape. You gave us great sound bites. You really answered our questions. And she was like, well, you know, Chris, um, I was once in your shoes. And, you know, I once worked for this radio station. I'm sorry, a TV station, local news station. And they sent me to go interview uh, Robin Williams and Priscilla Presley. And Elvis had just died. And she said, "The I, my news editor said, when you get there, uh, by the way, Robin Williams was doing a show called Mork and Mindy. Oprah told me this. Uh, and Priscilla Presley was guest starring on the show. So she said, Elvis just, just died the day before. My news editor says, when you get there, ask about the little show or whatever, but ask Priscilla about Elvis. She said, I walk in, and the first thing the publicist says to me is no Elvis questions. 
And I was like, so what'd you ask him about? And she was like, oh, you know, some some BS. <laughs> and then she said, but Chris, I made it a rule. When I got my show, when I got the Oprah Winfrey show, which was very successful, she said, I told my team that no matter who the person is, if they say I can't ask a question, they can't come on this show. I don't care what who they are, what they did. And he, and so me, I'm like, even Beyonce? Because I know Beyonce had been on our show. And she was like, even Beyonce. And I was like, Michael Jackson? She said, Michael Jackson too. She said, listen, my job, you're talking about ethically and which responsibility to your audience. She said, my job is to ask the questions that my viewers want to know. If you want to not answer it, you can say, I'm not going to answer that Oprah or next question. But at least my viewers knew that I asked the questions that they care about. And I think that's our job as journalists is to make sure that we don't leave, you know, questions on the table that really matter. If you're interviewing Michael Jackson and you can visibly see his skin is as light as a Dickens and all these tabloids reports are out about him having boys in his bed, you got to ask those questions. And Oprah's Neverland Ranch interview to this day is my favorite interview because she asked him everything and he answered. He answered. And if he didn't answer, he found ways to, you know, kind of say, uh, oh, I'm not going there, Oprah. That's that's nonsense. That's my Michael Jackson impression. Um, but yeah, I think our job is just to ask the tough questions no matter what. So how did you prepare for that? How did you prepare for your first interview with Oprah Winfrey? Like how? I mean, that's an enormous assignment. So funny, so funny story that for that interview, I wasn't supposed to have her. So and I was fine with that. I was kind of still new. You know, again, only 10 years at doing this. I was still kind of new. And so they told me that I had Jesse Williams. I had Forrest Whitaker. I had Lenny Kravitz. Those are all big name people. So I'm like, I'm good. I don't need Oprah. I had Forrest Whitaker, Lee Daniels. And I get there. And like the way this works when you're a journalist and you're going to interview people in the cast of these shows, normally it happens in hotels and they make these hotels hotel rooms look very special. They have a camera crew in, the movie posters behind the person. Um, and each room is like you're stepping into the essence of this person, you know, and you have, it's like speed dating. You have like five minutes or eight minutes with them to ask about three or four questions. And then when you're done, they give you your tapes. There's a media room where they give you all your files from each room you were in. Two cameras, sometimes three. If it's a bougie interview, you get three cameras. Um, but so you just walk in, you sit down, the cameras are rolling, you slate your name and you go. So I'm at this table, you know, getting my uh, my room assignments for Lenny and Jesse. And this woman says to me, oh, and then you have um, room two with Oprah. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> she said you have. I was like, I, no, I don't. They told me I didn't have Oprah. I, I asked for her. They said I don't have her. I'm good. She was like, oh, no, no, you have Oprah. You're good. Uh, and she's going to be your first person. I had no questions written for her. <laughs> I had no questions. And I'm having a full-blown panic attack. So I sat in front of her dressing room and God intervened. Um, not dressing room. I'm in front of her room. All of a sudden, the person in front of me finishes. And I'm just down writing questions, trying to figure out what do I ask Oprah? What do I ask Oprah? And her security came out with the person who was in front of me finishing up the interview. And he was like, um, Chris, we need 10 minutes. I have to go up to Oprah's um her, she was staying in the hotel to her hotel room. Her contact, uh, her contact is bothering her. I have to get her a new contact. I was like, oh, thank you, Jesus. So I sat there. I composed myself. She was in and I was literally my heart was racing because she was literally in the room like next to me. And this is my childhood like idol. 
everything about me in terms of my career really stems from something Oprah said on her show or just like her story. So I'm like, okay, take your time, hope the elevator breaks, all that. And by the time he came back down, Emily, I was ready. I was ready. I had my questions. Uh, it was phenomenal. It was, it was, it was one of those moments where I knew, okay, God, whatever you believe in, was telling me I should be doing this. Because when I walk in, and by the way, my dream was to always go on Oprah's show and be a guest. That didn't happen because her show ended a little early. Um, but I did go on her show to watch the show before it ended. I got to go be like an audience. Um, but when I walk into the room, Oprah says, Chris Witherspoon, just like she does when she interviews a guest, introduces a guest, and I'm like, I know Oprah's not saying my first and my last name. And she said it like three times. And I sit down and she's just like so happy to see me. Like she knows me. And so that's why I told her in the hallway, thank you for what you did for all of us. Because all of my all of my co-journalists from Us Weekly, People, you know, USA Today, everyone said she was so nice. And she said my first name and my last name. Um, but she only came and stood in front of me and did what she did at the end. So I will say that was a special Chris moment. Because um, she stood and talked to me for like 10 minutes and everyone was like, like, why the F is Oprah talking to this guy? Who is this guy? Um, but yeah, that's how I prepared. And it almost was a disaster. <laughs> wow. But it worked out so spectacularly. Yes, um, it did. And it went viral. I want to say that. That was my first viral moment. So Oprah talked about Trayvon Martin in that interview. And she had never talked about Trayvon Martin. And by the way, I didn't bring up his name. I asked her a question about um, the Obama administration because she was starring in a film about this butler who worked for Kennedy and a bunch of other folks. And Oprah brought up Trayvon Martin and compared the death of Trayvon Martin to Emmett Till. So I walk out of that interview and I email a Today Show producer and say, hey, I actually got Oprah. I wasn't supposed to, but I got her. Uh, do you all want the tape? Um, so I think it's really good. We talked about a lot of great stuff. And they were like, when you get home, send it, send it our way. Child, I went home. I went to bed because I was exhausted. I wake up at 8, a, 8 in the morning. My phone's blowing up. Everybody named mom was calling me and texting me. And they're like, Chris, you're, you're on the Today Show. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm in bed. <laughs> and they're like, no, you're on the Today Show. Matt Lauer, who was there at the time, OU alum, who was very good to me, by the way. Matt Lauer, Savannah Gunthrie, they tossed to my interview. And they said, we have an exclusive with Oprah from Chris Witherspoon from the Grio. And she's talking about Trayvon Martin. They show the clip. It was on Fox News. I get a car. I get a call from MSNBC calling me, telling me, Chris, we're bringing you in studio to discuss your Oprah interview. I'm like, really? Me? <laughs> um, yeah. So it was one of those moments that, that it was divine. Like me getting her, her saying what she said without me really even asking about Trayvon Martin. Um, it turned into a thing, a thing, thing. And I got an agent from it. CAA called me. Yeah, CAA, Creative Artist Agency, called me. Two days later, this agent who I had been trying to get to sign me called me and said, Chris, I saw your interview. Uh, come on in. We want to sign you. All from Oprah. That's the Oprah effect. Yes. Wow. Yes. That's all I have for you today. Well, I told you, you a so lot. I told you a lot of stories. So keep those dreams going. You guys listening also. Dream big. Shoot for the stars. Because if I can do it, y'all can do it. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. <laughs> Today, guest host Emily Vota talked with entertainment journalist and entrepreneur Chris Witherspoon about his career and his latest project called Pop Viewers. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. 
please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Have a good day, everyone.